Hello and welcome to The Low Strangers, a Swindon Town fan podcast with me, Rich Pullen, proudly sponsored by the STFC Official Supporters Club. Rogers is streaking ahead and he's onside. Beautiful play! That is that! What a good shot! Hello and welcome to the Low Strangers podcast. Thanks, as always, for listening. My guest for this episode is Tommy Mooney. Wow. This one, for a long time I felt, was a bit of a holy grail episode when I first started, I suppose, pre-production for this podcast back in right about October 2017, well over six months before the first episode with Aaron Oakley aired, I jotted a few names down of who I would love to talk to about their Swindon careers, and I wrote about ten down, but one of the first names on that list was Tommy Mooney, and I think anyone who's listened to this podcast for more than a couple of episodes will know that that season deeply affected me as a town fan. I say in the podcast, you know, my love for Swindon was waning before 2003 and four for various reasons. And that season really reignited the love. And I think that's why that terrible, terrible conclusion to the season at, at that horrible ground in Brighton really left an impact on me it left an impact on most of us, to be honest. And one of the main reasons behind that season and that conclusion was Tommy Mooney. Tommy was brilliant in that first half. I mean, he's great throughout. But when Sam wasn't scoring, he'd get the goals. And when Tommy didn't score, Sam would get the goals. And then Rory came in and, and, and complimented that. And, of course, on the final game... Virgo scores in injury time of extra time. Mooney is partly responsible for that. And he misses a penalty as well. And of course, as we all know, his legacy was completely ruined, I suppose, when he left to join Oxford United a month or so later. We talk about all of this. Uh, He had such a great career. So I do, as I always do, start at the beginning and work our way to Swindon. But... I ask all the questions and he answers them all as well. He was brilliant. I absolutely love talking to Tommy. He had me at the edge of my seat for long periods of it. He was brilliant, articulate and honest, which is all I can ever ask from anyone who's a guest on this podcast. So thank you, Tommy. Luckily, I'm not as tribal anymore because, you know, I think 20-year-old Rich would have had a, a few things to say, probably just saying why over and over again but I didn't. We had a good old talk and let's get it going. So let's start the Hooter for the Low Strangers podcast. Enjoy. Oh, 
Hello, Tommy. Hi, Rich. Thank you ever so much for agreeing to be a part of this podcast. One season, but we've got lots to talk about. It was an eventful season, I'll give you that. <laughs> so the way I like to do this is I like to go through the entirety of Swindon Town players' careers. You'd served the majority of your career before you rocked up at Swindon, so we're going to talk about it, but we're going to keep it quite minimum or we'll be here all night before we get to Swindon. The way I like to start this is by asking you who your favourite team was when you were younger and who were your early football heroes? Um, as, as a kid, I suppose you go where where your parents guide you and my dad was a Liverpool supporter so growing up in the 70s and 80s I was I was a bit of a glory hunter and, and Liverpool were my team so it was a long way from Middlesbrough so we went as much as we could we probably went to Wembley more times than we went to Anfield but uh, we went to Anfield probably a couple of times a season so I would say, definitely say Liverpool were the team and Daglish was the hero What finals did you see? Well we went every year whether Liverpool were, were in it or not I think it was one of those where my dad was member of a social club, as so happens in the northeast, and and we'd go down and a coach mm. um, every May and watch the, the the FA Cup final certainly, and sometimes if Liverpool were in it, then we'd go and watch the League Cup final, which was more often than not probably in in during that time. So yeah, yeah. I went to went the old Wembley a few times. FA Cup final is still one of the dream tickets for me. One day I'll get there, probably not with Swindon, but I'll get there eventually. So. Middlesbrough is, I mean, when you're growing up, Middlesbrough into your teens, they're going through a tough time. Um, it's, a, it's a city or it's a borough of industry. Um, what was your early football experiences like growing up around, around Middlesbrough? Yeah, I, I think yeah, I, mean, I was from a place called Billingham, which is just outside Middlesbrough, but very few have heard of it. So it's, it's in between Middlesbrough and Hartlepool. It's where um, um, Brian Clough is linked to Billingham, I think, isn't he? Yeah, I think he, there's links there. He's yeah. from a little bit further afield, but uh, there's links certainly to, to Billingham. I dare say every town in the country will hold, <laughs> try and claim to a link with Brian. But, but uh, no, I think there is there is some links there. He did a little bit a little bit of coaching during his short spell in in that uh, Middlesbrough. Is it something like Symphonia or something like that? Their team, Billingham Symphonia. Oh. Yeah, that's which was my old team. Oh wow! So yeah, that's a that's a good knowledge. That Rich, thank you. Very good knowledge. Billingham Synthonia, which are now sadly defunct and the stadium's still there, but derelict, which is a shame because I had many happy years there before I went to, to Aston Villa. So it's a little bit of a shame and it was too expensive to to uh, to upkeep. Mm. So it's one of those where a great club, that non-league club in the Northern League, which my dad played for in the 60s and 70s, I then played for in the uh, mid to late 80s so it, it, it's sad but I'm sure there's plenty of clubs like that uh, around the country but certainly I, you know growing up in that area football's a big thing um, probably if I'm honest I went to a stronger rugby school although it wasn't a private school by any means um, we had a, a good rugby team and I played probably rugby at a higher level um, until I was 14 and then I made a decision to choose football which at times, I'm not sure I made the right decision, but nevertheless, I made a, a living out of the game. So it was one of those where uh, at 14, I decided to, to leave the rugby alone and, and go and join Middlesbrough Schoolboys. What is it about North Yorkshire, Teesside, Tynan Weir for managing to unearth so many young footballers? 
I think it's very simple, Rich, and, and I don't mean to put the area down, but there's not an awful lot else to do. Mm. So all, all of my schoolmates, you either became a footballer or you went in the Marines. Mm. It's as very simple as that, that my social, my friendship group at school of six of us, probably I became a footballer, one became a school teacher and four became Royal Marines. Mm. So while that's great when they're on leave, because if, if there's any grief in a, in a pub, then you know you're all right. Um, you know, you sort of lose touch because everybody moves away from from that area. Um, but nevertheless, you know, I wouldn't change a minute of my childhood. It was it was fabulous, and I genuinely believe it gave me the uh, tenacity, let's say, to to become a success in my chosen field. And how long were you with Middlesbrough as a schoolboy? I was there two years. Um, I was an August birthday, so I was always the youngest in the year. Um, I was there two years till I left school, and they never offered me what was then a YTS, which is well why still to this day you're not allowed to mention uh, Middlesbrough in my parents' home, because it made me, it it shattered my dream, if you like, that club. So it was very simple. I, they never offered me a YTS, so I managed to to get my head down at school got the exams I needed and, and I, this is going to sound ridiculous but if it hadn't been for football I'd have been an accountant by now. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought you might giggle. You worked hard then. Yeah, no, I I spent 18 months. I decided rather the accountancy was a four-year course, bookkeeping was a three-year course. So I chose to do the bookkeeping course and 18 months into it, I was offered a trial at Aston Villa. Um, and from there, the football came back into my life. Yeah, it always amazes me how like you're not good enough for one team, but you're good enough for someone like Aston Villa, who are, you know at the time, still one of the biggest times. I mean, in the 80s, they did get relegated. But by the time you're a pro there, of course, they're finishing second in the Football League. Um, yeah. What was those early experiences like as a youth player at Aston Villa? Well, it was difficult for me because I was playing uh, during my time at, at college. I was I was playing for Billingham Synthonia's under 18s and first team on some occasions, and I'd scored a lot of goals in my first season. By the second season, I think I had 20 goals already by the October, which created interest from from professional clubs, and I had Ipswich, Southampton, and Villa to choose from. The Villa scout was a friend of my of my dad's so I chose them first and they offered me I had a two week trial and they offered me a YTS within three days so I had then the decision to make do I go back onto what sounds daft now but £27.50 a week when I was earning you know several times more than that while I was at college and doing my work placement at an accountant's firm so you know when that opportunity comes, it doesn't take you long to make that decision and realise that money is not everything. So I, I jumped at that opportunity and, like you say, very, very successful first team. I, I was nowhere near it. I was only in the squad once um, for the first team on Boxing Day because they had a lot of injuries. But, you know, during that time, I suppose even from 16, I was like six stone soaking wet and five foot six when I left school. Mm. So I developed as a as a human and developed as a, as a man, I suppose, to when I eventually left Aston Villa at, at 18, 19. I'm always, I'm always amazed, especially with what, what football is like now and you still work in the game um, and what 
players from your generation had to go through just as a YTS. Um, what was your day-to-day like back then? Day-to-day was, well, because Bodymore Heath Villa's training ground is out in the middle of nowhere by the Belfry. Um, you couldn't get a bus to it, so I had to get two buses from my digs to Villa Park. And then the minibus, the kit man picked us all up in the minibus. And the Aston Villa kit man, Jim Paul, um, since passed away, but he was notorious for being quite difficult, let's just say, um, and thrived on that. So if you weren't there at one minute to nine, you missed the minibus out to, to Bodymore and you knew that it was a £12 taxi to Bodymore. Well, when you're on £27 a, a week, that's a huge sum. So I was leaving my digs at seven o'clock in the morning just to get there for for 20 past eight, otherwise I'd have been pushing it to get there for 10 to nine on the other bus. So it was a t- it was a difficult time. And sometimes, you know, you got back to your digs and EastEnders was just starting mm. after leaving at seven in the morning. So it was a tough time, but I genuinely believe that the reason more, ca- more players came through under that era was because I think you valued it more. You worked an awful lot harder. Whereas now, you know, kids go into academies at eight and they think they've made it at 10. And then by 16, three quarters of them have gone. And during that time, nobody under the age of 14 went to a professional club. So you only had two years as a schoolboy, two years as a YTS, and then hopefully as many as you can as a pro. It's very different to these days. Obviously, we had jobs to do and we had coaches' cars to clean. And we had boot, boots to clean and we had the lock to pick if anybody locked you in the boot room, which often happened if you'd had a bad day on the morning. Telling you can cope with that sort of stuff. Um, did you have specific boot cleaning duties or was it whoever needed cleaning? Yeah, I mean, I was lucky because I, I signed in the October mm. and I'd already done part of my, a YTS with the, the accountancy. I only did eight months as a YTS and then I signed pro for my second season. So I, I was quite look, lucky in the fact that I had David Platt was was one of my pros um, and he was brilliant with me. He was He'd get me boots all of the time. And when I passed my driving test, he lent me his five series BMW to go in at home in at Christmas, which had never been seen in Billingham. <laughs> my parents used to take turns in watching it out of the window to make sure nobody robbed it. Um, I wasn't going to say anything. No, yeah, no, no, no. It's fully expected. But no, all of those things make you realise the opportunity you've got. And if you get your head down and work hard, then there's a career there for you. First of your two, part the first of the two parts of your career where Graham Taylor is your manager when you were a pro. What was yeah. he like? At the, we'll talk about him in the Watford days later. But what was he like as your first pro manager? Obviously, at the time, and you mentioned it, Aston Villa then were very successful. He'd taken them on back-to-back promotions, I think, and took them to the year that I left in 1990. They were second in what's now the Premier League. So very, very successful team. And that was run on a very, very tight ship. You know, I could count on one hand the amount of times that I'd said anything other than morning to the manager during my almost two years at Aston Villa as a young player. Mm. But he was respectful. He always knew your name, whereas Doug Ellis called me Tony for two years. (laughs) So that was slightly different. But he was very, very respectful. And players were respectful towards him. And if you weren't, then you were shown the door. It was very, very simple. And you know, I don't, I don't believe he changed until, until he passed away. He was just an absolute 
gentleman and you knew that he was telling you the truth. Every time he spoke to you, he looked you in the eye, which I liked. Um, and, I, and I genuinely believe that without, certainly without Graham Taylor, like you say you might go on to the Watford years, but even just that, the development of me as a person mm. under Graham Taylor, without even speaking to him, was uh, a huge part in, in the career I went on to have. Did you have any influences within that squad? You've mentioned David Platt. I'm trying to think of players that would have been around that time forward line. So I think Tony Cascarino must have been there. I mean... Yeah, Big Lance. Big Lance was there. We called him Lance. I don't know whether you you remember on Neighbours there was a character called Lance, Big Dopey Geezer, <laughs> um, and Tony Cascarino's name was Lance because you know he he had a right hand car drive, right <laughs> right hand drive car, and he'd get in the left hand side every day. He was that dopey, but. <laughs> You know, he, he again, he's developed into a very good media personality. So people change over the years. Um, when I signed pro, I moved into posh digs, if you like, um, and lived with Ian Olney, who yep. was another young player who was scoring a lot of goals in the top flight. Yeah, older than think, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We had to retire really early yeah. um, because of injury. But I lived with him in, in, in Sutton Caulfield and... You know, he taught me what a Saturday night out was like after a, a first team win on a sat- Saturday afternoon. So, you know, I, I owe a lot to him as well, I suppose, or maybe I don't. I don't know. Depends how you look at it. <laughs> but we no, we had a, a we had a fabulous time and great dressing room that I learned from. And you know, people like Derek Mountfield, Paul McGrath, um, Tony Daly was another one that went on to do good things with England. And I, again, I played with him later on at Watford. So it was a fabulous dressing room. It was one of those where you, you took your kit to your pro and you didn't get any eye contact because if you did, you knew you were going in the bath or something worse um, in your full training kit. So it was it, it was a very respectful dressing room and a very respectful club. So before Villa, you could have been, you were training as an accountant where you were earning far more as a footballer, and in 1990 you leave. And you joined Scarborough. I used to live in North Yorkshire as a kid. I, I remember Scarborough very much in the football league. It was probably around the tail end of when you were playing for them as well. But it wasn't a rich club. It wasn't a, a most well-supported club in the world. So was it a case of rebuilding? Was it a case of, I just want to be a professional footballer and I'm willing to do anything? Or was that the only team that came in for you? No, it was um, Bobby Downs was the youth team coach. And he was good friends with the Scarborough manager at the time, Ray McHale. And he recommended me to Ray at Scarborough. And I also had options to go to other clubs. But in all honesty, you know, I was missing my mum, which sounds daft, as I'm now an almost 48-year-old man. But at the time, you know, I, I was very, very close to my family. And like you say, Scarborough was only an hour and a quarter drive from my Billingham home. So it meant I'd get back to see my parents more. I had a, girl, a local girlfriend at the time. So it was a no-brainer that I was going to go there first and you know I went from six weeks in Birmingham at a time to going home every weekend while I was at Scarborough which I stayed in a hotel Monday to Saturday and then went home on a Saturday night after a game so it was one of those where the geography of it worked um, which it did several times during my career but that was probably the first time where I made a decision on the geography Mm. um, of being close back close to my girlfriend, sister and parents. This is Swindon Town podcast, so I have to ask you about Ray McHale because he played over 100 times for Swindon. So how was he as a manager? He was brilliant, Ray. He was uh, 
I learned very little, very similar to Barry Fry as my manager at Southend. I learned very little about football, but an awful lot about life. <laughs> just a great, great bloke. Not an awful lot of uh, coaching going on. It was more just a case of if he's not on your team, kick him and then put it back in the back of the net. But he was brilliant for me, gave him my league debut. So I'll be forever grateful to Ray um, and how he developed me over. I think Ray was the manager for two of the three years that I was there. Again, very, very grateful to Ray. I think no player ever forgets the man that gave them their league debut. And I'll be forever grateful to Ray for that. Yeah, you have three seasons at Scarborough. They're a middle table, a mid-table fourth division team, as it was back then. I think your last season is the first season of the Premier League, 92-93. So it must have been nice... For all those setbacks, like Middlesbrough setback, being released by Villa, just to be in the Football League and scoring goals. Yeah, it, it was fabulous. Um, I, I mean, I'd scored, I think at, at that time, if you were 18, 19 and scoring goals, then bigger clubs were looking at you. And at the end of the, the second year, I mean, Blackburn had won the Premier League or were close that season around it. And I remember Dag Leach coming to watch me and, you know, everybody telling me that, Blackburn were going to buy me and it was just I'd already said Dag Leach was I had his number seven shirt there was no names on the shirts then so when he came and then contacted my agent I was double keen to go obviously like he would but the chairman at the time at Scarborough was asking for ridiculous money so I knew I was never going to get what would have been a dream move if you like um, to the top flight whether I was ready for it then I don't know but I certainly I wouldn't change anything that happened afterwards. But when those big clubs come knocking and then they're put off by a price tag that's ridiculous and a chairman's, you know, just trying to make a few quid and then sell the club, um, I found that difficult. So going into my third season there, I was just I knew that I only had one more season to do and then I could leave because there was no compensation then, there was no Bosman ruling, there was no nothing. So when they eventually accepted an offer of a hundred thousand. When they turned down 750 from Blackburn, supposedly only a year before, um, I was pleased to to go to Southend with Barry Fry. Yeah, I think it was probably a, the better move considering what Blackburn were doing. They did similar with um, probably around the time they were looking at you, to be honest, Tommy. When they took Duncan Shearer from Swindon, yeah, took Swindon out of the uh, the playoff race and then sold him to Aberdeen months right. later and I still haven't forgiven Blackburn for that uh, if I'm honest but you go to Southend with Barry Fry Southend for people that don't realise they are a championship level team at that stage um, a year or so before they had Stan Collymore beginning his uh, his ascent um, into the towards the Premier League I went that summer I went to replace Stan. so you're the replacement of Stan Collymore yeah they signed me and and, and Jason Lee mm. so the the two of us signed for Southend together to to replace Stan's goals and it was, you know, we were we were flying at Southend. It was my, I remember I scored my first, I'd got sent off at the end of the season for Scarborough, which, you know, patience and not speaking to referees was never, ever my forte, even into my 30s. So I got sent off at the end of my, the season at Scarborough. So I missed the first two games and I made my championship debut away at Millwall at the opening of the new den, actually, and scored and I came on a sub. So, it, you know, it was one of those where, Southend was great for me, but when Barry Fry was there, we were second in the championship, what's now the championship. Um, he went to Birmingham and they appointed Peter Taylor and the wheels came off. Was it as simple as that, change of manager, change of philosophies, he didn't fancy you? Well, Barry was one of those, 
you knew that if you're a striker, so if I started the game and I hadn't scored by half time, I knew I was getting substituted. Barry was like that. He'd do three. He was one of the first managers that would do three subs at half time. So if you were sub and you were a striker, you knew you were coming on at half time. And if you hadn't scored, you were coming off. It was one of those. And again, like Ray, you know, I learned so much from Barry. Not Barry wasn't a coach. He looked he looked ridiculous in a tracksuit. He looked much better in a suit and tie. Um, but Barry was brilliant. You know, not an awful lot. Very, in fact, as far removed from Graham Taylor as you could ever could be, Barry. But I learned I learned so much from him too. I mean, I, I went I bought my first house in Essex. And Barry made a few quid on the kickbacks from the mortgage broker and the and everybody else. So it was one of those where you know Barry did everything. He he organised your sponsored car and he organised your mortgage and he organised everything for you. But you never seen him until a Friday on the training ground. Well, he, he's he's had a fascinating career, and to to think it all started as being a a Busby babe. And you, you're right, even when he's even if you look at foot. Um, Pictures of him when he's a footballer, he doesn't look quite right, yeah. to be honest, does he? Parking! 1-0 Swindon Town! Thoroughly deserved opening goal! That, that brings us to Watford and a loan deal originally that turned into the most... Expe- uh, I imagine you are Watford nowadays um, yeah. when, when we look at your career. It's where you spent the majority of your time, you scored your goals, you had... a Hell of a roller coaster. So you know Barry Fry's exit to Birmingham created the best part of your career. Yeah, I'd had a difficult six months because Peter Taylor came in, and I think I had five goals from ten championship, my first ten championship appearances. And when Peter Taylor came in, he he dropped me completely. So I had six months of not playing for Southend, and he wouldn't let me. Middlesbrough came in. Lenny Lawrence was the manager, which obviously. My dad didn't want me to do, but I thought, well, at least it gets me back home and away from from the Essex area. Um, but they, they knocked that back. And it was only Glenn Roder's persistence, who was the manager of Watford at the time. Um, it was only his persist- persistence that eventually I went there on loan in the March time until the end of the season. Managed to do OK, helped them remain in the championship. And, you know, from there on, Watford was just an, an unbelievable. Yes, we had we had some relegations, but we had promotions. You know, my kids were born while I played for Watford. Um, and I had, I think it was eight, eight seasons, seven years, and I played in eight seasons. So it, I just had a fabulous time at Watford. And if I'm honest, didn't want to leave. But Viali was taking over and GT was leaving. And I was on a Bosman. So it was one of those where I knew I had to go and I suppose stabilise my family's future. And when you're on a Bosman, you can do that when you've just scored 20 odd goals in the championship. Yeah. I think when I look at Watford and when, when I research these, these conversations, I always look at the squads. So I always look what's happening around at that time. And I think your generation is definitely has a case with being the transition from old school to modern day when I look at your strike partners from that day I mean you started with Kevin Phillips and but you still had like Devon White and Gary Penrice Ronnie Rosenthal yeah. um, Jason yeah. Lee returned and then you had the new order like Helder Helgerson and Tommy Smith 
Um, so huge contrast in strike partners and, and different kinds of ability in a positive way. Yeah, um, and then we were, like I say, we got we, in 98 and 99, we had back-to-back promotions mm. um, from what's now League One to the Premier League. So we just had a fantastic dressing room, great team spirit, no superstars, worked hard, which is the minimum requirement when you work for Graham Taylor. Um, and, you know, we've we just had a 20-year a, a celebration of the 99 Wembley promotion to the Premier League where all bar one of a squad of 18 made it. And, you know, we had people travelling from America, New Zealand, Australia, just to see each other again. So that tells you what the team spirit was like in that in that dressing room. We were bang average championship players, but we were in exceptional dressing room when we were t- together. And that that is what I tried to recreate with every team that I played for afterwards because it was my first experience of it. Mm-hmm. You know, that that has perhaps one of the most resounding things in my career was that team spirit we had in that dressing room to get the back-to-back promotions. When we got to the Premier League, it was it was difficult. It was a machine. And you're playing against people that you were going home to watch against Match of the Day for the last 10 years, which is what I'd done. Um, and then obviously I, I had a, a bad knee injury that kept me out for seven and a half months. So I missed the majority of the, the Premier League season for Watford and only came back. We were already relegated when I came back and played the last four or five games. So very, very difficult in that respect. But again, down to Graham Taylor, we were we were ready in pre-season to go and get promoted again. I think we can't gloss over the... Uh... The, the, the achievement in '99. I mean, I'm looking at the two lineups now, and that Bolton lineup is absolutely full of of players that, if they didn't already have Premiership experience, they were about to have just so much. Neil Cox, Robbie Elliott, Per Franson, Andy Todd, Mark Fish. He went to a World Cup for goodness sake. Uh, Michael Johansson, yeah. Klaus Jensen, Ida Good Johnson, um, yeah. Bob Taylor, who'd been there, done that, and then Ricardo Gardner. Um, and absolutely, and it, I remember that game well. I mean, I was only, well, I was almost sixteen during that game, but it was seen yeah. as such a shock when, uh, when, when Wright put put Watford in the lead, and and then obviously Smart finished it off. But it, it was, it was one of those where, if you, if we're honest about it, I mean, Ida went on to play for Barcelona and won Champions Leagues, no doubt. Mm. Um, but he he missed three really good chances. We should have been three 0 down before we scored at Wembley. And, you know, I mentioned earlier on about what about my visits to Wembley. Just playing at Wembley was the highlight of my career and still is yeah. and still is. Um, but but if I'd already finished his chances, you know, and, and I joke, Neil Cox is, is one of my best mates now. And I joke about it on a daily basis. Whenever we meet, to meet him, uh, it, I mention it. You know, it's still one of those things I never get tired of mentioning. They turned up in tracksuits. We turned up in suits. We knew we'd won in the tunnel. It was one of those days. I've got to ask about Elton John. It's, yeah, it's the it's the year of Rocket Man, the movie. So <laughs> I've I've got to ask about it and get those valuable, uh, you know, brownie points for being cutting edge and and so forth. Yeah. But what was Elton John like as a as an owner? Was he was he present? Was he one of these people that give you the occasional phone call and go, "Hi, Tommy, it's Elton." But that... yeah, he 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 wouldn't do phone call. I don't think Elton and still doesn't have a mobile phone, but. Um... No, he, he'd be in and around, 
the, the ground on a match day. Um, and he'd, he'd just drop his head in to the dressing room and say good luck before the game. And if we won, he'd come in afterwards. Um, but very much he did what GT asked of him. And they were a fab- fabulous combination. I mean, it, people say about Elton John, but, he, you know, he knew every one of those players. And uh, when he, when we got promoted, his mum looked after my daughters when we went on the open top bus. You know, it was <laughs> it was that type of club. You know, the, you could ask anything of the chairman, anything of the manager. As long as you gave of your best on a Saturday afternoon, they loved you. Mm. So, actually, one of one could actually be my claim to fame in life. Really, we, we were invited to Elton did a concert at Vicarage Road, and um, he invited ten ten players and their their partners and or friends, um, and we went. He he had the home dressing room. So we were queued up in the tunnel and the lads were like, from, from different areas, from the 70s, 80s, 90s and the noughties. Um, and this was probably, I don't know, maybe 2009, 2010, something like that. Um, so we were all queued up and nobody wanted to go in first. So I said, OK, I'll go in first. So walked in the dressing room and it was like I was walking into an I- Ikea furniture store. The dressing room was unrecognisable. There was flowers everywhere. It looked fabulous. Leather, Chesterfield sofas. And I just said to him, Chairman, I love what you've done for the done with the place. And he just laughed and gave me a big hug. Um, admired my suit at the time that I had on, which I made, made clear it wasn't a suit. It was a blue jacket and blue jeans. But then when... The rain started and we were sat in the front row of the concert and he stopped singing one of the cons, one of his songs and said, can somebody get Tommy Mooney a, a pack mac because his suit's getting wet? <laughs> and I thought my phone started to go immediately, obviously with people in the crowd. Um, and I couldn't wait for the concert to finish so I could ring my mum and dad and say, you're not going to believe this, Elton stopped singing to make sure that one of the stewards got me a, a, a rain jacket. <laughs> So forget my football career. That is my claim to fame. Well, he wasn't there for you in the in the cup final this summer because he was over in Copenhagen. Did you go to the uh, to the Manchester City final? I did. Yeah, I went to the semi final and the final. But you know, it's difficult. Listen, it, it, the chairman's an ultimate professional, mm. so there's no way he'd let his his um, fans down by no matter how much he loves Watford and how much he'd have loved to have been there. And obviously, his his kids and David were there, but. Um, he wouldn't let his fans down by missing a concert just because when Watford got to the cup final. Mm-hmm. The way he'll think of it is, well, we'll get there again next year and I won't I won't book a concert in for my FA Cup final day. That's the way he'll think of it. Before we leave Watford, we talked about you went to Wembley all the time as a kid and you, you played there. You supported Liverpool and you scored at Anfield, the only goal in a 1-0 win for Watford. I think it was in front of the cop, was it not? It was, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, you can look back at your career and, it, you know, there may be not, you know, a Stephen Gerrard or Ryan Giggs <laughs> sort of museum of medals, but they can't take that sort of way from, stuff away from you. Yeah, uh, listen, another, another fabulous day. I'd scored my first Premier League goal at home to Bradford the Saturday before and then to go to, to Anfield. Like I say, I mentioned how much Wembley meant to me. Anfield was was only just second um, to Wembley. So to go there and, and get our first Premier League win and get on the score sheet and, you know, I'm deadly from four yards, so even I'm not going to miss. 
so yeah, it was a, it was a fabulous day. It was the first time my dad had been in the away end at Anfield, so he was there with with my mum, which was a, a lovely, lovely day. Look at the space from Frank McAvenny. Away from Parker, not from Bruce though. Nyholt with a shot, took a deflection, he did. With Nyholt has equalised for Swindon Town. And bottom of the table they may be, but they are made of stern stuff. Well, what followed was at least one more season of success, but this time it was with Birmingham City. It was uh, Trevor Francis who took you to St Andrews. Um, yeah. You didn't want to leave Watford, but Birmingham were the next were the next club. Yeah, like you say, I say, I was on a Bosman. I was out of contract. I'd I'd scored 20, 21, 22 goals in that that season. We missed out on promotion, and then GT told me in March that he was leaving and Viali was coming in, and he didn't want me to stay. So I then acquired the services of an agent to say, listen, I'm leaving. I don't want to, but you know they've made this offer to me and this offer suggests that they don't want me to stay. Then GT's told me that Viali doesn't want me to stay. So then I went and spoke to seven or eight clubs, which you're allowed to do because, like I say, I was out of contract. Um, and I knew that this was my move, so... I spoke to seven managers in the championship. I spoke to Walter Smith at Everton, who had Franny Jeffers at the time, and they couldn't sell Franny Jeffers, so they didn't have the money they, they would have hoped. And so I, I tripled my money from Watford going to Birmingham. It's simple as that. And I thought, you know, maybe there's another chance of promotion here. With Trevor, it didn't really work out. I think Trevor lost his job in the in the November time, and then after the caretaker took over, then Steve Bruce came in just before Christmas, I believe, and then we just we went on an unbelievable run and and were promoted again this time at, at the Millennium Stadium, which was another fabulous stadium with a big crowd and the roof shut. So I felt like I'd done my job. I came to get them promoted. I had an awful lot of rows with Karen Brady about why she should pay me what she was paying me, and I said, <laughs> "Well, I'll get you promoted." It's as simple as that. And then. You know, to do that in my first year was a big relief because there was a lot of pressure on me. As we talk, at time of recording, because this will go out in the new season, but at time of recording, we're at a stage where Swindon fans are refreshing their phones or whatever to try and see who Swindon might have signed. When you've got eight clubs, seven, eight clubs to talk to, what is that process like? Well, like I said, I was proactive, thankfully, down to Graham Taylor because Mm. he told me in the March. So I knew that I wasn't going to stay. I think most managers would have known that if Watford have come up, had have come up with the money, then I would have stayed. Mm. There's no doubt about that. You know, I just, the children were, I think the girls were, the girls were two and two or three and my son was, was one or two. So, you know, we picked a house in Harpenden in Hertfordshire that we were going to move to, not thinking that they would never offer me, not offer me a, a new contract. Um, on the terms that I, that I felt I deserved. So it was one of those where I visited probably four or five training grounds um, before the end of the season, then spoke to a couple of managers on the phone after that. One of them was Steve Bruce because he was at Crystal Palace at the time. So that was a bit awkward when he came in because I turned him down as Crystal Palace manager. But, you know, I'd spoken to David Platt at Notts Forest at Neil Warnock at Sheffield United. I'd spoken to Wimbledon. 
Um, and then on the way back from Birmingham, Walter Smith rang my agent while I was in the car and said, we need to have a chat. So I went up and met him and quickly realised that, you know, sometimes, I, and I've said it before, I wasn't a Premier League player. I was, I was one of those where at that time the championship was easy and the Premier League was too much. Um, and I'm I'm not embarrassed to say that. I'd rather be honest. And I was honest at the time. So, you know, I thought, going to Birmingham, I thought, I'll get my 20 goals, we'll get promoted, and I'll get to the Premier League in a Birmingham team, rather than go into Everton, who were full of superstars at the time. You know, they had Gaza, Kevin Campbell, Duncan Ferguson up front. And when Walter Smith said to me, I want to play three up front, Duncan Ferguson, you and Kevin Campbell, I thought, well, we're not going to be playing much football here. So it was one of those where, and if I'm honest, my mum didn't want me to room with Gaza because she thought he was a nutcase. So mum sort of vetoed Everton and I went for the money at Birmingham. It was as simple as that. Listen to your parents, kids. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) What what you said a moment ago about sort of recognising essentially that you're a championship player really interests me because I completely agree there are players out there um, I can think of people like Robert Earnshaw David Nugent Patrick Bamford who have all these tremendous seasons at championship level but when they try and step up to the next level they don't quite make it the, the point that interests me though is were you are you in the minority where you're a footballer who recognised that at the time or do the majority of the players feel that they are Premiership, Premier League standard and refuse to believe that they are a Championship player? I think uh, uh, for the most part of my career, I wasn't motivated by money. Mm. I made one move on the back of what I was being paid. The rest I made on football decisions. And I think that is, it's increasingly unlikely that players will make those decisions on football terms rather than money terms now. Mm. Dwight Gale's another one. But who's going to turn down, you know, vast amounts of money to go and play for a Premier League club? If you fail, they're going to pay you up anyway. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So it's it's almost like it's a minimal risk. Mm. It's only your reputation that's at risk. It's not your career. Yeah. Because if you're at a Premier League club, you'll always get another move, you know. So uh, I, I think it's it's very rare. And don't get me wrong, I, I was very very lucky in my career with the t- the clubs that I paid played for and and the contracts that I had. It was just at the start of the well, it was ITV Digital more so than Sky when I signed for Birmingham. But now the figures are, are huge. Mm. You know, you've got average players that, that can earn you know a million pound a year up to five and six million pound a year. Then when I was playing, top players were on a million pound a year. Internationals were on a million pound a year. So, you know, it's it's very, very different. So I think it'd be very rare that you'd get a player turn around and say to himself in the mirror, if you like, you know, I can be very successful in the championship or be a bit part player in the Premier League. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to stay in the championship because I want to play football because I'm a footballer. That was the decision that I made on a couple of occasions. So what went wrong at Birmingham? Nothing went wrong. We got promoted. And that was so we were, the, we were there. So we, therefore, we were a Premier League team. Yeah. And I wasn't a Premier League player. So, you know, it wasn't it wasn't anything. I, I, I had a bit of a fallout with Steve Bruce over it and then went on loan my first my second season at Birmingham, our first in the Premier League, I went on loan to Stoke, Sheffield United and Derby. 
and I'd spoken to Andy King during that season and that started my relationship with Andy but you know financially it wasn't feasible because Birmingham weren't willing to settle my contract so I went to those three clubs and then I ended up spoke to Andy again and then went to New York on loan went to Dallas on loan that summer um, and then once I decided because I had the MLS in the back of my mind because the kids were young enough they hadn't started big school, as I call it. Um, so I thought, right, I, w- I just want to go and see, to see, see what it's like. So I put Andy off. In the meantime, I left my agent negotiating with Birmingham, went to America, realised I didn't want to take the kids there. So when I came back, I spoke to Andy and, and several of the managers with only a year left of my contract at Birmingham, which made it easier to move. And then Andy worked his magic and... I signed for Swindon. Kerr had made the run ahead of him. This is White. He's lost the marking. Now Mott! And what joy he will take from that goal. You're listening to the Low Strangers podcast, proudly sponsored by the STFC Official Supporters Club. Was there also... A possibility at that stage, despite these conversations, these trials in the USA and these conversations with Andy King, that you were possibly going to retire at this stage as well? No, no, I was never going to retire. I loved scoring goals too yeah. much. I was never going to retire. I, I was going to go to what was difficult was I was on a huge contract at Birmingham. So I eventually came to Swindon on a tenth of what I was earning at, at Birmingham, less than a tenth. So Andy facilitated the ease of that he did Andy was just I mean I'm sure you know Andy he was a, just a brilliant man just a top top bloke and, we, and he'd, he'd ring me every day I got to the point where I was sick of speaking to him um, and he used to laugh he'd go he'd say it's one day you're not going to take my call and I'm and I actually said to him on one occasion it's today now bugger off <laughs> you know so and I put the phone down on him you know, I'd, God knows what my phone bills were, but I always used to, we had a home in Spain and every summer, each, in fact, those two summers, the summer before I joined Swindon, the summer I left Swindon, I had a couple of hour phone call with Andy walking along the beach in Marbella. One to try and get me to sign and one to try and get me to stay. And those phone calls must have been a couple of hundred quid each because you just couldn't get him off the phone once he started. Andy King has come up a lot in this podcast because I think the most common era of players that I speak to are Andy King generation players. And yeah. it's, it really is a split, to be honest with you, Tommy. They either love him or they yeah. hated him. Um, what, let's say you're in the club now. You've explained how you how you ended up at Swindon. What yeah. was your day-to-day like with Andy? Love, hate. Love hate sums it up with probably every player that's ever worked with Andy, mm. because if he had something to say, he said it, and I love that about him. A lot of players couldn't cope with that, but I like honesty. Mm. So, you know, he was during the negotiations. I genuinely believe he was honest during my time as his as his player. He was honest before home games. There's a head tennis court underneath the stand, and we're. We'd play head tennis, me and him, and then Gurney would come in and have a game. But he couldn't keep the ball on the te- head tennis court. You know what Gurns was like. And Kingy would play with a cigar in his mouth. 
and laugh at you when you made a mistake. You, you wanted to punch him most days. Most days you wanted to punch him. But then afterwards, you'd want to cuddle him because he'd just smile at you because he knew he was playing mind games with you in a very, very different way to what Graham Taylor did with me earlier. But he was just... Uh, listen, I can't speak highly enough of him. He, again, he wasn't a coach. Mm. Not a coach. But if you sat with him and had a cup of coffee or he'd have a cup of tea, you, you learned during a 20-minute conversation more than you would if he took you on the training pitch. And he knew how to change games. Tactically, he was very, very good. He didn't look like a manager. He didn't behave like a manager, let's be honest. But he became a very, very good friend to me, um, which obviously hurt me an awful lot when he passed away. Yeah. I think to give you a background, if you weren't aware that Swindon Town, it was tough supporting Swindon before the 2003-04 campaign. Um, we hadn't done anything close to an overall good season since 95-96 when we got promoted yeah. to what was in the Championship. And although what we wouldn't give to play in the Championship again, really it was season upon season of getting stuffed but just about staying up. And then we went down and then we were rubbish in the third tier as well and we just survived in the seasons before. So when you were... I mean, I've got to be honest... At that stage, and why 2003-04 season means so much to me as a fan, and why I talk about it all the bloody time, is because the season and season before that, maybe if it wasn't for Sammy Parkin and Danny Invergeve, Invincible, however you want to pronounce him, my yeah. my love for Swindon was was beginning to fade. There was no other club. It was just, I was trying, you know, I'm, I'm late teens, early 20s. Um, I'm trying to get a girlfriend, you know, following yeah. Swindon to lose, uh, you know, far out outposts. Just wasn't beginning, wasn't wasn't interesting me anymore. I still looked up their results every week. I still, it was still my thing. I was still a Swindon fan, but it was, it was, it was beginning to, it was beginning to go. And then, King managed to work his magic and he yeah. he brought a squad together, including yourself, that 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 were contenders and they weren't the it wasn't the best team in that division. It wasn't they didn't have that much money, like you said. But it must have been one of the most difficult debuts of your career, the Sheffield Wednesday game. Yeah, really. I mean fabulous atmosphere. Yeah. I mean Sheffield Wednesday a huge big team, you know, and, and now that that day it was just we had a we had an awful pre-season. Things hadn't gone well in the games. We probably weren't as fit as we should have been because a lot of people got injuries. But we'd come together and, you know, we tried. You had Gurns, Matty Hewlett, Matty Haywood, myself and Sam, little Sammy Igo, Juki, some half-decent players. And you're thinking that, that division, if me and Sam can get the goals, we'll be all right. And that's how that's how Andy sold it to me. He said, listen, we're just going to go forward and forward and forward. You'll score your 20 goals. Because that's all I was bothered about, getting 20 goals every season. And it panned out. You know, we, the Sheffield Wednesday game was was awful when you look back on it. But if that hadn't happened, we wouldn't have had... I remember, I think we went to South End on the Tuesday night in the Cup and I scored my first goal. Mm -hmm. Then we went to Colchester on the Friday night and I scored again. And it was just a roller coaster. But I had chance upon chance upon chance and so did Sam and we worked together. 
we saw we well, I suppose the old-fashioned way of calling it is as strikers we dovetailed. If I scored, Sam wouldn't, and if I didn't, Sam would. So, you, so you think that the news because Sheffield Wednesday game is the day that a lot of your teammates found out that their old teammate Jimmy Davis had had passed away. Do you think yeah. that sort of ignited something within that injury sort of ravaged squads to just push on for those opening weeks and months? Well, you had you you had all of that, and if memory serves me right, you know we found out in at pre-match about Jimmy. Now, I, I didn't know him, but some of the boys were in tears. And sometimes that can motivate you. And sometimes I I had exactly the same thing with, with Mark Philo when I played for Wickham a couple of years later. It's an awful thing to have to cope with on a match day, let alone any other day. But you have to, you can't go and let your supporters and your manager and, the, and your teammates down. You have to go and play. And it was it was re- it was difficult enough for me, and I didn't know him. Seeing the pain in my teammates' eyes, so, and then it's you know blistering hot in the atmosphere, and the the ball rolls at kickoff, and it's like, well, we've got to get on with this. And it probably took us fifteen or twenty minutes before people realised that, and that affected us in in that way. So, and and that with the aftermath of, of what happened, you know, that affected the club for a couple of weeks. Yeah. If not longer, it certainly affected some of the younger players that longer that knew him better than I did. So, and again, you know, Andy as well and the staff, Malcolm Crosby found it really difficult. There was an awful lot of staff at the club, both match day staff or coaching staff, if you like, and office staff, that have been at Swindon for many, many years. It was one of those. It's one of those clubs where normally it's only the manager that leaves. Everybody else stays, so it hurt everybody. But then I think because we started to pick up some results and started to play well and score goals, that that helped the healing a little bit. Let's talk about your teammates at Swindon then. So I mean, something that a lot of. Uh... A lot of the listeners like is they like to learn about what was happening behind the scenes, but you know, keeping anything that will get anyone in trouble <laughs> out of it. So, what are those? What are your lasting memories of that squad? We just had a, we had a great banter, you know, big Matty Hayward. You know, you would certainly would never ever see him on countdown, but if you fired 90 balls into the air, he'd head 89 away. It was one of those, you know, and he knew it. You know, he he struggled with ordering a sandwich, big Matty, and then you had like Sammy Igo had come in on his motorbike with covered in tattoos, and you think, how's a seven-year-old boy got tattoos on his on his body? But then he'd go out on a Saturday afternoon, and he'd be magical. Mm-hmm. He used to drive me mad because he could put the cross in five touches earlier than he should, you know. But he he wouldn't because he'd want a ball of his own. In fact, King Kingy used to give him a ball on his own in training just so somebody else could have a touch. <laughs> And then you had Gurns, that's the most miserable man in the world. But he's like an onion. You peel a layer back and he's a, he's a top bloke. Now, me and him used to argue like mad because, believe it or not, I was quite a stubborn man. And so was Gurns. And we'd row like mad. We'd have each other by the throat a couple of times. And the lads would be like, let him at it because nobody would have a go and step between us, apart from Big Matty, but he wouldn't realise what he was doing. <laughs> 
so it was you know it was just a, a, con- a dressing room of contrasts which was nice which was really nice because you know I went there with with no the only pressure that was on me was the fact that I'd left Birmingham to go to Swindon when I could have probably stayed in the championship yeah so my pro- professional pride was the pressure that was on me but I really enjoyed going to I'm not being rude when I say a smaller club. Swindon were a smaller club than Birmingham and Watford, my, my two previous clubs. So I, I, I thrived on that. I loved it. I loved seeing more people in the stadium every week. The attendances went up over the season. Mm-hmm. It was it was just a great atmosphere. The supporters were fabulous to me. And I like to think that, you know what, I repaid them on the pitch. Oh yeah, and, and and that brings us to your strike partnership with Sam Parkin. I don't really remember everyone and everyone saying, "Oh, he's he's had it," you know, or he's he's struggling because. Oh, Sam... I don't know. There was a few. There was a few in the stand on the far side. There's always the, a few the, in the stand. Tell past it, but I went as much as I think. I did. I get twenty three, twenty four goals that season. You got twenty in all comps. Was it twenty? Yeah, uh, and I got four in training. So we'll say there's twenty four. <laughs> So, so I got my twenty goals. All right, that's 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 okay. But I I went sixteen games without scoring. Yeah. And I was, I'm a very superstitious guy. I it was costing me a fortune buying a new suit every week because I was trying to do something different. And then, actually, halfway through, Andy turned it round and said, "Right, we're in tracksuits because I'm sick of seeing him in a new suit." <laughs> no, it was, it, it was just. I didn't know what I didn't know what to do. I went sixteen games. I've never gone sixteen games in my life without scoring. Yeah. And then to finish with twenty goals and to finish with the season that we had, and Sam was injured for quite a while. Yeah. And I, I, I Sam was out. I was probably halfway through that spell. I mean, Sammy Igo scored a couple of goals, but nobody else is going to score mm-hmm. unless Gern smashed a free kick in. So it was like. There was, I mean, I say there was no pressure, but the pressure that you put on yourself is is bad enough. Mm. But during that spell, you know, there was times where people were saying, I really fancy Swindon to get promoted. And then all of a sudden it's like, no, it's not going to work. And then we come back again. Yeah. And of course, uh, King brings in Rory Fallon to to help out during during that stage as well. Yeah. Um, What was your rapport like with, Sam off the pitch as well as on the pitch. Yeah, we got an all right. We got an okay. He's uh, well, as you as you know, Sam's a funny guy. Yeah. Um, perhaps a little bit more sedate at the moment as he builds his his journalist career. But at the time, you know, he was a he was a funny guy. I liked him. Very quick thinking, intelligent comedy, which I quite like. Um, and we got on quite well between. Me, Gerns, Big Matty and, and Sam, we had the dressing room pretty much pinned down to like nobody dared move, otherwise they were going to get hammered. Mm. It was one of those. And Sam was a big part of that that humour in the dressing room. Pretty much for his gear that he was wearing, because you'd think <laughs> he was still in an 80s boy band. But at, at the time, he used to come in. He, some, some days we used to think that he'd wear something just so the lads would hammer him, because some of his gear was horrific. But then Sammy Igo would come in, come in looking like Danny Zuko and get him out of it. So no, it was it, we just had a a really good partnership, and for the majority of Sam's goals, 
they probably I assisted him, and for the majority of my goals, he assisted me. Mm. We worked really well. There's an anecdote that he said that he told me when he when he came on this podcast that he, and I hope it was the season that you were there, but he used to uh, sell Christmas trees from his car. And I've got to ask the question: Did you ever buy a Christmas tree from Sam Parkin? So I wouldn't have bought a bag of sweets from Sam Parkin. There's no way I would ever buy anything from Sam Parking because there's no way they would be legitimate. I'm going to find somebody who did eventually. He says he sold some, so I'm going to find someone who's going to admit it. <laughs> well, I've, I've never heard of that. And if he had, those Christmas trees wouldn't have been in the boot of his car. They'd have been His car would have been covered in them if we'd have known that. <laughs> okay, then. So um, one of the glorious things for me about doing this podcast is it acts as a bit of therapy for me if I'm honest with you and that can only mean we're going towards the playoffs um, against Brighton a first leg we should have absolutely won and then a second leg which we did win but then perished on penalties and it's you know if I was to go on social media now and said I'm talking about I'm talking to Tommy Mooney you know what they're going to talk about or what flippant response because for all that Mooney mania that happened during the season for all of those couple of guys in the corner deriding your lack of goals during those 16 games what happens during that weekend or that week in the playoffs sort of sadly defined whether that's fair or unfair sadly defined your Swindon legacy to be honest with you the playoffs first yeah I mean it's my fault simple as that I said it at the time I still say it now it's my fault that we never went through to play it at the millennium you know two reasons and I'd rather take responsibility I was the senior pro in the dressing room perhaps the most experienced um, so I take it upon my shoulders at the time and still do. So it's, I don't believe in regrets. There's the things you do and the things you don't do. I didn't do some things right. I missed chances in the in the semi-finals. I let Rory Fallon go back and mark my man in the last minute because I couldn't move my legs. And then they score, and then that takes it to penalties, and I miss my penalty. It's as simple as that. There's nothing I can do about it. And it is genuinely one of the most difficult times of my career dealing with that because I knew, I, like I say, if I'd have scored a couple of the chances that I'd had after scoring, listen, if I'd scored eight, nine goals in that season, you wouldn't have expected me to put those chances away. But I didn't. You said I scored 20. I should have scored in the playoffs, in both legs, arguably. I should have done my job and went back and I can't, I can't remember the lad's name now. He went to Celtic afterwards. Sammy Parking won't let me mention his name. It's a star sign. Yeah. Yeah, Adam Virgo. Yeah. <laughs> I should have gone and back, back and marked him, but I, I genuinely couldn't move. I was, the game had caught up with me physically. I couldn't do any more. Yeah. I'd run my nuts off yeah. and I just said to Rory, go back and mark him and he and he won the header so between I think he got between Reese and, and Rory and scored the header which then took it to extra time and you know that wasn't going to do my legs any favours or the, the the corner as well where I think if you would have held the ball up but I think you just whack it and it goes back in that leads towards 
the uh, the goal as well, and it's, it's it just seems like that's how unbelievable football is. How the hundred and nineteenth and hundred and twentieth minute of the final game of the season just has that that impact on, like I said, your legacy. Yeah, no, it's uh, that might be the case. You're making it worse for me, Richie. I don't remember <laughs> that. But, uh, no, like I said, that that that's pretty much summarizes what I, I, I literally couldn't move yeah I mean I was you know what whatever I was 30 33 34 at the time whatever I was I'd run my run my legs into the ground that season I'd played 50 games maybe and it in it the last couple of minutes of of extra time I just had nothing left yeah Again, this is this is I'm I'm that sort of impressionable football age of tw- I'm about twenty, and like I said, because I was on the wane in my support at that stage. Like I said, definitely not gone, but it was definitely drifting. It, Andy King's season with and you guys just sucked me back in, and we all believed and we all felt that we could beat Bristol City at the Millennium Stadium as well. And then it just, it just, it. I mean, if we would have lost three 0 in that game, no problem. It was just one of those things. But it was the manner, and it doesn't matter. How, really, it's just Virgo one hundred and twenty. It's still the most, oh, just heartbreaking scenario for any club that has to go through that. And what the fans at the game that day had to deal with was one, the weather, and two, the Brighton fans weren't exactly uh, dignified in victory no, that evening no, either. Exactly, yeah. But then, if we'd won the penalties, you wouldn't remember all of that. Of course not. So you know that's as it's as simple as that. I'd I'd spent the last ten minutes of extra time just trying to get my, keep my legs moving because I knew I was taking a penalty. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was one of those. So whatever was left after the goal or whatever, ten minutes before that, I was trying to preserve something just in case I needed mm. something at the end. And you know, I struck my penalty well. It was just a good save. Was, yeah, yeah, absolutely was. So. What are your memories of the aftermath of that? Because Sam Parkin's going to hospital. He's got he's had his teeth knocked out. Um, Sam Igo is having a cigarette in the changing rooms. Um, what do you remember of that? Of that? Yeah, well, I was with Sammy Igo and Gerns. Yeah. Um, you know, it was just I didn't want to speak to anybody. Didn't 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 even want to try and help my mates out, my teammates out, because I was so annoyed with myself really difficult and Gerns was the same Gerns missed missed the penalty as well mm. so you know we were really down and then I seen Andy's face and he knew he knew that that was our chance and that was his chance because up until that those last kicks in the penalty shootout everything had gone to plan with what he convinced me to come to the club, the way that we would play football, the amount of goals I would score. And then, you know, we, we didn't need even need to speak to each other, just the eye contact yeah. that that was there for a couple of minutes. We just stared at each other because neither of us could speak. Yeah. And then, you know, what the aftermath of that was really, really difficult to take. Yeah. But... You know, I was out of contract. I didn't have to take it. Yeah. Okay, so I mean, I mean, final thought. I mean, in Andy King's um, to 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 really go with Andy King there is that second leg was a goddamn masterclass because he we nailed that second leg. 
um, completely. So it, it, it was an absolute joy of a football match right up until the end. It was fantastic, and that's why we talk about it today. Moncare plays it back in again, and no offside! And Taylor has scored! And that surely means it's the Premier League for Swindon Town now! So, the season ends. And... <laughs> <laughs> here we are we spent an hour getting to it come on let's let's have it out so the season ends we i mean how better is like you finish the game right i'm gonna i'm gonna stay a second season and we're gonna get the job done you joined oxford tommy yeah on principle you know i've said it many many times i suppose the truth can never be backed up now because andy can't speak um but you know when I joined the club, like I say, I, I came to the club on a tenth of what I was earning at Birmingham. On the proviso that if somebody came in and earned more than me, they'd pay me that. And I took them at their word. I certainly took Andy at his word. And then during the season, Sam signed a new contract. So I was expecting a new contract at that point. And they said, we can't afford it. I said, listen, don't worry about it. Let's sort it out at the end of the season. Like I said, I wasn't motivated by the money. It was just what had been promised to me. And then um, at the end of the season, they'd turn around and said, uh, initially, they offered me, they asked me to take less money after what had just happened in the playoffs. Um, and I thought, you know, it, it, this is just not right. It's not cricket, as they say. Um, not only were they not promising me what they'd promised me at the very start of my contract, then what they'd offered me or promised me halfway through the season. And I just, if I'd given my word to stay, which I did, if they came up with what they'd promised me in the, whenever it was that Sam signed his new contract, the December time, something like that, then I, I would 100% I would have stayed. And that's hence why I, I had an hour on the phone to Andy from Spain. Because Andy was saying, listen, there's nothing I can do. I know we promised you this, we've done this and we've done that. I spoke to one of the directors and he, and he just barefaced lied to me and said that we hadn't agreed this, we hadn't agreed that. Um, and he blamed Andy. And I wasn't having that because I, I believed Andy 100%. Yeah. And then... I'd come to the decision that I was leaving on principle, even if they'd come up with the money at the end. On principle, I left the club. Yeah. And I spoke to half a dozen clubs. Um, and whether you believe me or not, the Oxford, th Oxford Swindon thing never, never had any bearing on it whatsoever. Oxford was half an hour closer to my home. Mm. I went and met Graham Ricks. And he said that they were going to bring in a lot of players that had played at a higher level, of which there was only me and Lee Bradbury in the end because the chairman pulled the plug on Graham Ricks. So I genuinely believe I'll drop down, I'll get my 20 goals, we'll get promoted and it's only an hour from home. Yeah. Um, because there was no way I was moving my children out of the family home in Solihull. Um, so a couple of weeks later, I agreed to join them. And then, obviously, I realised when it, I think it might have come out in the press just before I officially signed. 
And I thought, no, because I, I hadn't played in a Swindon v Oxford game. Mm. I didn't really, if I'm honest, and it sounds ridiculous, understand it. But if it makes the Swindon supporters feel better, it massively backfired, didn't it? Because the chairman just told me another bunch of lies. Um, no, I don't think. I, don't, I mean, some people might. I mean, I certainly remember when you left Oxford and you said that was a big, it was a big mistake that you know I'm not a spiteful person, so I didn't, I wasn't going ha ha good. I was, I was, I felt for you because like I, I speak to loads of footballers. You only have one career, and I do not expect every or any Swindon Town player to have a mastermind knowledge of the football club and how to please fans and and this is pre-social media so you know yeah. you can rock up sign your contract and it's not until the the ink is still you know drying that you realize that you've gone and joined them big rivals and on the on mm. the on the landscape of football Swindon Oxford isn't one of the biggest rivalries except within our little bubble um so yeah. i mean for all of that stuff um I I I I didn't lose sleep over that. That is what it is, isn't it? It's 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 exactly. one of those things, and you do have it, football is a matter of circumstance. You're not going to move your your young family to Carlisle because you know they off they're offering a grand more. You really do have to think yeah. about um, proximity and schooling and things like that. And I think there is an element where football fans don't really think about that. I think it's just because the. It's, it is a sin to, to join your, lo your, your nearest rivals. I'm yeah. not going to pretend that that's not the case. It is. It was tremendously disappointing. Um, but that's football. And, and there are no... The, the days of somebody saying, I've been at Swindon for a year, three years, five years, but I'm definitely not going to join their rival. Those days are gone because you have one career. And if you're, if you're sold, and a lot of looking around for clubs has been sold a project. It's a horrible word, but it is, isn't it? It's been yeah. sold a project. And if it... But it was exactly that. Yeah. yeah, the Oxford one, it was exactly that. I was going to start my coaching career. Yeah. I was going to play. And the chairman was going to do this and he was going to do that and he was going to sign him and he was going to sign him, of which, like I say, he only signed Bradders. So it, it was a, a project and it, and it backfired massively because... You know, I, I fell out with the board of directors at Swindon and the chairman because they reneged on their promise. I mean, you're not going to you're not gonna get anybody that disagrees that that, <laughs> that will we'll argue that that happened or not, because that era, we all know how uh, the club was. Operating. Yeah, it was. But I, 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 I was I had to look my dad and my son in the eye. That's the way I looked at it. Yeah. So I've always been a man of principle. If I give you my word then I'll carry it through. Yeah. I've always been like that that way. And that and people know that about me. So there was no way I would go back. As much as I, I loved Andy King, and we, I, I, I can't tell you what the content of the phone call while I was mm. in Spain, when he was trying to get me to stay. It just, it, I, I couldn't do it. I wouldn't have, get, I wouldn't have, I need to be able to, in, work for a team, a club, a manager that I want to give everything for. Mm. And I couldn't have done it the way they treated me that, that summer. Yeah. After what, what went on, I couldn't have done it. So I made the decision to leave and the Oxford thing was separate, completely yeah. separate. But like I say, I went out of the frying pan into the fire. 
because I, I went on to work for somebody that I didn't trust from day two. Yeah. And I realized it was a mistake. Yeah. And I realized I'd, le I'd left my mates in that dressing room and I'd left a very, very close friend by now in Andy King. You know, we used to speak on a match day. I was at, when I was at Oxford and when I was at Wickham, we'd speak on a Saturday morning. Yeah. That's how close we were. And he understood why I left. And that's the only thing that mattered to me. I mean, I'm, I'm at the edge of my seat listening to this, to be honest with you, Tommy. So that's that's what the long pause is for. That was absolutely incredible and hugely articulate and super clear to me. Um, and I hope it is the same for the people that are listening. What what happened after Oxford? Because we're not going to. This isn't a Oxford United podcast. I don't want to talk to that about that no. any more any more than I have to. And I think you've said everything. You've encapsulated a year at a football club perfectly well there. But yeah. what it did well, do, then yeah. Then then I went to Wickham, yeah. which is what I should have done when I left Swindon, because I, I spoke to John Gorman that summer. So I probably should have gone to Wickham, but as daft as this this sounds, and we talk about the geography of football clubs again, that was another half an hour away. Yeah. Now, while I had in my contract, I only had to do three days a week, so I never trained on a Monday. So I always had Sunday and a Monday off, and I always had a Wednesday off. And each of my managers knew that I would go to the gym in Solihull on a Sunday, a Monday and a Wednesday. And they trusted me. And it, it I mean, as it transpired, I played 50 games every season. Yeah. Until, the, until I retired. So, you know, again, if I give them my word that that's what I'll do, I don't want to be driving on the motorway four days a week and then play. If we've got a Tuesday game, I'll come in on a Monday and I'll stay overnight. Um, and that, so, you know, in the end, I ended up going to John at Wickham a year later and having two really good years there. Yeah, and, and John Gorman obviously has strong links uh, with Swindon Town as he was our manager in the Premier League season and he was assistant yeah. to Glenn Hoddle with all that. Um, I, I love John Gorman. He, he's just, a, listen, I, I've been so, so lucky. I, I, I have no idea how many managers I've played for, if you include caretaker managers, but probably close to 30. Mm. I've been so, so lucky with the, the nucleus of managers that I've worked for. you know. And, and like I said to you, he, he, going back to Ray McHale and Barry Fry, I learned something from them. I worked for John Gorman, Andy King, Graham Taylor, Steve Bruce, um, Steve Cottrell at Stoke. I... I've had some fabulous, fabulous managers that I've learned little bits from every one of them. Some some things that I've learned not to ever use if I go into a management role. But that's part of a relationship that you have at a professional level. So John John's just John was too nice. Mm, yeah. And I think it, it helped him having myself and Rob Lee, two experienced players. You know, Rob and I would, were together at Derby several years earlier, or a couple of years earlier. So we then at Wickham, we used to run the dressing room because John didn't want confrontation. Yeah. He'd, conf he'd confront me and he'd confront Rob because he knew we could say exactly what he wanted to us and we wouldn't be offended. But it, he found it difficult to do that with the younger players. Very similar to, to Andy in that respect. He was the quintessential assistant manager. Yes, I can understand why he was so successful as a system manager. Yeah. Because as an assistant, you can be everybody's friend. Yeah. 
and John, I, I haven't heard one person with a bad word to say about John across his career. Yeah. Just an absolute gentleman. Yeah. And, you know, we had some difficulties at, at Wickham, like I say, with Mark Philo passing away. And then John's wife was, was ill and passed away. So we had a really tough time. And he's, he's another one of those managers where when I see them, I, I hug them and I still call them gaffer. And for me, that's the most respectful thing that I can say to a manager is still call them gaffer. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I'm really fortunate to, well, two of my best ones in Graham Taylor and Andy King have passed away, but I've probably got another six or seven that I call gaffer. Yeah. Patient football from Swindon Town. Now the delivery, saved by Elliott on the follow-up though, Matt Ritchie equalises for Swindon Town. And that goal has been coming. And he took the words right out of my mind. So how how did you how did you find winding down? Was it was it time or did you struggle mentally with with retirement or did you know it was it was it was coming? Um, well, we all know it's coming. <laughs> I was really lucky that you know I looked after myself better in my thirties than I did in my twenties. Yeah, I had the respect of managers to say you don't need to come in, you don't need to do this, you know, don't need to do that. As long as you're fit and can play 90 minutes on a Saturday, they trusted me and I trusted them. So that helped me prolong it. I had two great years at Wickham, um, one under John and then one under Paul Lambert, where we got to the semi-finals of the Carling Cup. Then I had an offer from Walsall, which is, you know, 20 minutes from my Solihull home. Um, I was 37 then, so I took that year Richard Money, who was my youth team coach at Villa and was the manager at Walsall. And he rang me up and said, listen, I've got a, an idea for you. And it, he sold Walsall on the back of Troy Deeney. So we've got this young kid, a bit of a protégé. He's a massive Birmingham fan, loves you. Come in and take him under your, under your wing for me for a year um, and see where we go. And he did better than anybody thought he would. So I had a year at Walsall and then, you know, it was almost one of those, like Jonathan Woodgate signing for Real Madrid. <laughs> you know, I go and play for Marbella at 38, 37, 38 years old. But it wasn't a career move. You know, we had the, the home there. The kids were young enough so that we could go and have a gamble, really. I'll go there, play. They'll pay my bills and the kids can have a life experience. Yeah. And it and it was great for six months, and then they stopped paying us. Yeah. So I retired whilst skiing in Sierra Nevada during the winter break. I just said to the kids one morning, I said, are you enjoying this? Because Daddy's got to go back training tomorrow. And they're like, oh, this is brilliant. It's the first time we've been skiing. I said, okay. Well, what, let's, this was, I was due back in on Boxing Day. So I actually retired on Christmas morning, and I said to the kids, if you want to stay, we'll stay. And Daddy won't do football anymore. And the kids were like, brilliant. <laughs> so we stayed skiing for another week and then drove back to Marbella. And we, I stayed there for another two and a half years. Wow. So as much as people are scared of retirement and retirement creeps up on you, for probably the last five years, I'd wanted to play golf every day, yeah. the day after I finished. But I wouldn't call it a day until that point and I just thought it was the right time well you started your YTS in the 80s 
Um, you finish in the 2000s and now your son is going through that journey um, at the early stages of pro. I've seen him play for Aston Villa under 23s. Um, I mean, how how do you advise? How, do you just let them get on with it? How is it a scary thing as a parent with your child? Because they've got Tommy Mooney's name attached and, you know, hugely popular yeah. at several clubs. How, how's he getting on? It's difficult. It's a difficult one and it's one that I've struggled with and so is Kelsey. Mm. I think any if you speak to any foot, ex-footballer dad whose son is trying to make their way in the game, it's a very, very difficult one and difficult one to balance. And I've struggled with it because I'm a very hands-on dad mm. and, a, and I was a hands-on coach at Villa when he, I, I used to coach him there. So it, it made it difficult, but I understand what's difficult about this career. I think that's where I now I, I help him in that way a little bit rather than say, do this, do that, which I did in the past. Now it's just a case of, I know what he's thinking, so I tell him and we don't have to talk about it. It's one of those. But, you know, whether he wants to be a footballer or if we'd stayed in Spain, he'd have been a golfer. So, you know, that's how funny the things can, can pan out. He's, he went on loan to Cheltenham, scored his first league goal, which, including my career, is the proudest day of my life. So to see him score his first goal away at Northampton, and I, you know, I said to him a couple of weeks ago, whether you go on to score seventy-seven league goals or two hundred and fifty league goals, I'll never be prouder than seeing you do you score your first one. So, if he has a career, fabulous. If he doesn't, and he's happy. Then at the end of the day, he's my son. He's not Kelsey Mooney, the footballer. He's Kelsey Mooney, my son. Absolutely, and I think I think he played at the county ground last season for Cheltenham. Came on as a sub. Um, he did, yeah. Just before Christmas, didn't he? I think. Um, well, yes. I mean, as we wrap up now, absolutely incredible conversation. Um, what What are you up to now? So I left Aston Villa in September when the gaffer got sacked, uh, Steve Bruce. Um, I was loan manager there for four years and then four years in the academy prior to that. Um, so now I work for a company called Transfer Room mm-hmm. um, that enables predominantly loans but also transfers. It's an online platform and I manage all of their UK clubs. So for me, it's very very similar to my previous role. I'm driving around training grounds and stadiums, speaking to managers, coaches, heads of recruitment, CEOs, um, and showing them how to use the system and, and where they can save money on transfers. Um, so it's it's an interesting side for me. It's something you, I've done well to set up this Skype tonight, Rich, because I'm not the most computer literate person in the world. Um, and it was you who had the problems as well. So yeah, we'll, we'll cut that bit out. <laughs> it, 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 did, it did make me smile. I'm thinking I've done brilliant to get Skype on here. Um, so it's an online platform with somebody who runs the UK clubs that hasn't got a clue about how computers work. Mm. So pick the bones out of that if you can. But I know I'm enjoying it. Um, how long I'll, 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 I'll be in that situation, I, I don't know. Um, I do miss the day-to-day workings. of. of so I, I've been at a training ground for, for the last 30 years. So um, it, this is different to me. Working from home is not is not my ideal situation. 
Um, and set, setting your diary is great, but I love being at a training ground and I do miss that, but I'm, I'm enjoying the role as it is. Fantastic. And final question, pretty much ask this to everyone. If you close your eyes and, and think of Swindon Town, what are your immediate memories? Uh, I, it, it sounds ridiculous because I only had a year there, but I have so many fun memories. The staff, you know, I, I've been back several times in my role at, uh, at Aston Villa and, you know, I always go, go and give the lady who sells the programmes a kiss and a cuddle outside of the, the main entrance. And everybody's so welcoming there, you know. All right, I'm always going to get a little bit of stick for what happened and how I left. But I just had some fantastic times there and, and I, I can never park up in that car park without thinking of Andy. So only only fun memories of Swindon Town Tommy thank you very much you're welcome The Low Strangers is proudly sponsored by the official STFC Supporters Club the music was created by the great Matthew Kilford and the artwork was provided expertly by John Daglish thanks for listening It's a grand old team to play for, and it's a grand old team to see. You know the history, it's enough to make your heart glow. We don't care what Newcastle says, what the hell do we care? Cause we only know that there's gonna be a show, and it's when they